following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing January 14th, 2021. What role can Canadians play in terms of de escalating the Russia US standoff on the border with Ukraine? Was the sudden eruption of protest in Kazakhstan the site of a US influenced colored revolution? Was the sliding of NATO forces closer and closer to Russia part of a 30-year war between the two countries? Will sanctions, a military conflict, or potentially even a nuclear war be the inevitable outcome of NATO forces crossing over Putin's red line? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as the world witnesses in horror the real consequences of the first superpowers confrontation since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we try to take a closer look at the truth behind the scenes, the source of the conflict, and whether or not the situation can and will be peacefully resolved. In our first half hour, Glenn Michaelchuk of Peace Alliance Winnipeg drops by to articulate the demands of similar groups across the country relating to Canada's role in restoration of peace. We also play part of an interview recorded last week with geopolitical analyst and investigative journalist Pepe Escobar about the direction the standoff was headed and about the role of Kazakhstan as playing a sneaky behind-the-scenes role in the chaos. Finally, in our second half hour, we have a talk with longtime foreign correspondent in Russia, John Helmer, about the larger context and the factors giving Russia an edge. On this week's program, Countdown to Apocalypse. Are the U.S. and Russia finally on course toward World War III? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 14, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and are available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Earlier today, we revealed that Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla on Monday said two doses of the company's vaccine may not provide strong protection against infection from the Omicron COVID variant. More than that, it's been also revealed that the original shots have also lost some of their efficacy at preventing hospitalization. He also stated the following, The third dose of the current vaccine is providing quite good protection against deaths and decent protection against hospitalizations, unquote. He also made sure to explain the fact that this variant of the virus is a more difficult target than previous variants. That comes from the article, Pfizer scandal. CEO Albert Bourla reveals two COVID vaccine shots offer very limited protection, if any, after claiming shot was 100% effective. By Reda Matiscu, 
Posted January 12th, originally published at Health Thoroughfare. For almost two years, we have been experiencing the onslaughts of a brand new form of warring aggression. For all but a tiny percentage of the global population, we have become the targeted enemy. The we that is being attacked extends to most of the global population. We are being culled in preparation for a new political economy characterized by an AI master-slave relation along with massive robotization. It is becoming increasingly clear that the transition to the scheme, which de facto implies depopulation, kicked into gear with the brutal economic and health impacts of the lockdowns and then with the deaths and injuries from the COVID injections. That comes from the article. Artificial Intelligence, AI, and the COVID pandemic, a truth bomb, explodes to illuminate the war on humanity by Professor Anthony J. Hall, posted January 12th. Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs published two documents that I would say have the same geopolitical significance for the current 21st century. In a very direct tone, to put it bluntly, Russia has issued an ultimatum, despite Putin rejecting such formulation, to the United States and NATO. If you do not accept our terms, we will be forced to use military and military technical means. Obviously, it is not customary to speak of a hegemon, even more so of the global hegemon, who, after the collapse of the USSR, triumphantly declared not only the planet American, the so-called unipolar world, but also the 21st century, the American century, based on the famous doctrine of the New American Century Project. What actually happened on December 17, 2021? In the same way that the end of the British Empire was announced to the world on that date, the end of American hegemony was publicly announced. That comes from the article, December 17, 2021. Pax Americana is Dead, the End of U.S. Hegemony Officially Announced, by Professor Ivelo Gruev, posted January 12th. As reported by Reuters, participants in the simulation discussed multilateral responses to a hypothetical global financial crisis. Proposed policy solutions included debt repayment grace periods, swap repo agreements, coordinated bank holidays, and coordinated delinking from major currencies. The idea of simulated delinking from major currencies raised some eyebrows because of its timing on the same day participants gathered to launch collective strength. Reports circulated that the Biden administration was considering removing Russia from the global electronic payment messaging system known as SWIFT, short for Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. This measure would be part of a package of economic sanctions the U.S. would levy against Russia should it attack Ukraine. However, what may raise even more eyebrows is the list of participants in the collective strength simulation, which includes the IMF and World Bank and, indirectly, the World Economic Forum, or WEF. That comes from the article, 
international finance leaders hold war game exercise simulating global financial collapse. Should we be worried? By Michael Nevradakis, posted January 12th, originally published at Children's Health Defense. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Does Canada have a role to play in terms of resolving the dispute between Russia and the West that has arisen around Ukraine? I put the question to Glenn Michaelchuk. He is chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg and involved with a network of other peace groups and civil society organizations across Canada. Canadian peace organizations have been working together for uh, at least two years now, maybe a bit more, in in an informal organization uh, called the Canadian Peace Network to uh, revitalize the peace movement in Canada. So it's a com- it's a comprised of many peace organizations from across the country, and of course, uh, one of the concerns has been uh, Canada's um, role in the NATO escalation of tensions with Russia. Beginning uh, in December, we began discussing the putting together a national call to the Prime Minister, asking for and Canada to. Um, withdraw from these uh, operations that it's currently engaged in in Ukraine and other places in Eastern Europe as part of uh, our contribution in Canada to de-escalating the um, tensions between the U.S. and Russia and NATO and Russia. And, of course, these have really been in the news a great deal recently. And it does involve the NATO actions in Eastern Europe and particularly in Ukraine, as NATO continues to refuse what I think is a very reasonable um, geopolitical demand of Russia, that Ukraine not be allowed to enter NATO. I mean, that was an assurance that was given to uh, the former Soviet Union as it uh, as it dismantled uh, the Warsaw Pact in, 19, in the uh, early 1990s, that the United States made assurances that NATO would not expand eastward uh, in exchange for the Soviet Union's uh, acceptance of German reunification. So, of course, over the years, we've seen these assurances being broken as various countries like Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia joined uh, NATO. That was in 2004. And NATO has continued to push uh, expansion plans, uh, notably Ukraine and Georgia, over Russian opposition because, of course, this stations NATO forces directly on the borders of Russia. And uh, natural concern is that why would this be the case when the Cold War in Europe ended and there was, in, in, in the years following the Cold War, there was a, a definite opportunity to enhance European security. That didn't happen. And so we've seen the conflict uh, 
escalate over Ukraine. And um, that brings us to, and Canada, of course, has played a very significant role in that conflict, in escalating that conflict in Ukraine. Mm. People have pointed to how Russia supposedly annexed Crimea shortly after Yanukovych left office. Uh, with 100,000 soldiers on the border, charged and ready to deploy, how legitimate is the risk that Russia will indeed invade Ukraine and take it over, and that Biden therefore had cause to raise these concerns? Well, you have you have to look at the situation that the deployment of uh, the Russia, first of all, Russia can deploy soldiers as it sees fit within its own boundaries. Uh, with its, within its own territory, just as any other nation would do. But the reality is also facing Russia, that it has faced this continued pressure and expansion uh, of NATO. It's, it, it's faced this continuous pressure to uh, destabilize Ukraine. And the reason I say that is because, uh, of course, there was agreement reached in, in through the Minsk protocols to... Uh, return Ukraine to a, a state of independence and peace. But that those protocols were, in my opinion, undermined by the United States because they would have seen a de-escalation of tensions in, in, in Ukraine. Those protocols, that's why one of the reasons uh, behind this statement is for, to call for various actions that are already in place, which is to... Um, to abide by the Minsk protocols and what they called for in terms of stabilizing the situation in Ukraine. So I don't find it unusual that Russia has stationed, um, has moved military uh, resources to uh, its borders with Ukraine, or that it, uh, it responded the way it did in Crimea, which is a slightly different issue. We see U.S. NATO forces all around the world. And if you look at some maps, you see that, in fact, um, Russia faces, you know, these forces aligned against it across its borders. It's a similar situation with China. No one says, um, no one raises uh, the question of why is Canada and other nations sailing uh, ships in waters to provoke China? So the question of Russia deploying its military soldiers, I think, has to be understood in terms of the gen genuine fears it feels as to uh, what could happen in the east of East Ukraine. In Crimea, there was an actual uh, resolution uh, passed and voted on uh, in, a, in a public by the public there, by the people there in Crimea, to uh, to align themselves with Russia. And part of that was based on the growing concerns of the right-wing um, regime in Kiev. And of course, there was the tragedy in, um, in Crimea where the trade union headquarters were burned by these fascist military gangs that had, had come into Crimea from Kiev. So the people of Crimea were very concerned about their future and what was happening in Kiev. So they took the decision to rejoin Russia, the Russian Federation, and 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 um, and from there, I mean, Russia uh, then did deploy uh, its military into Crimea 
to protect that country. So what specific actions uh, uh, is your group and uh, wider groups across Canada planning in, in the weeks ahead, and, and how can listeners get involved? Okay. Uh, first of all, the national call to the Trudeau government will be hosted on the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute website. And or at, it's open at this point to si signing by organizations, of which I mentioned Peace Alliance Winnipeg has, uh, will be signing it. So they can certainly check out the statement at the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute to get and it's a very good statement because it lays out very clearly the history of the present um, tensions over Ukraine. And it gives people a very good background that they won't find in the typical reporting in Western mainstream media, which is really creating a fog as to what is going on there and who is to blame. The other thing is there is a petition which will be uh, hosted on the just Peace Advocates website, and the petition uh, mirrors the statement in terms of uh, demands, and the petition is to the Canadian government, uh, calling on the Canadian government to stop arming Ukraine and end its Operation Unifier and Operation Re Reassurance and withdraw all armed forces from Eastern Europe uh, as a way of creating a de-escalation of the situation. And it's important, I think, in terms of Canada's um, sovereignty and independence, in terms of why are we doing this simply as part of commitments to a, a NATO or an organization such as NATO, which is escalating these, these war tensions. That was the chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg, Glenn Michaelchuk. Last week, I had Pepe Escobar on my program. He's a correspondent and editor-at-large at Asia Times and columnist for Consortium News and Strategic Culture in Moscow. He also wrote the book entitled Raging Twenties, Great Power Politics Meets Techno-Feudalism. I discussed with him some of the complications around the Russia-U.S. confrontation around Ukraine. I asked him how this situation would likely resolve itself. It's not, a, it's not a matter of crystal ball. It's, if, if you analyze the way these geopolitical tectonic plates are going, the Russian intelligence, which is arguably the best on the planet, miles ahead of everybody else, they already seen uh, the big picture. Uh, they already announced their demands. They want to have a fruitful, intelligent, uh, um, consequent uh, dialogue with their NATO partners, as they put it, partners, uh, and the Americans. And they said, look, if you don't want it, it's your problem. As long as you don't interfere with anything that we're doing. If you interfere with us, our response is going to be lethal. Yeah. So, so, so this is more like a, you don't need to have a PhD in geopolitics to understand that, you know. But obviously, we are they're talking with absolutely irrational people think that the what my friend ray mcgovern calls the misimat the the military industrial uh, uh, intelligence think tank academia company you know, 
all, all that mishmash, all that matrix, you know, it's impossible to have a, if, if you read the, the, these American publications, whatever that is, a foreign policy, foreign affairs or whatever, it's, it's always about American preeminence, uh, how to, you know, how to make China and Russia bow down to us, whatever. It's the same, same, same old shit, you know, so it, we are tired of it. We, we want to see what uh, a possibly grown-up world in terms of uh, incorporating uh, Europe uh, in Eurasia, for instance, would look like. And uh, with Africa, with Latin America joining in, joining in as well, you know, a, a world of uh, trade benefits, connectivity, uh, multipolarity, respect for international law, not rules-based international order, you know, primacy of the United Nations, but the United Nations and everybody has a voice and not the United Nations that is con basically controlled by the US. All that, but it, it's impossible. So in, in terms of uh, an adult dialogue, uh, the Russians at least are, okay, setting uh, an example. Let's try to have an adult dialogue. We're gonna see soon if anything will emerge from these conversations. Uh, none of us, independent analysts, let's put it this way, are betting on any breakthroughs. But at least they are trying. And uh, they are not worried. Uh, it's the same. I'll give an example in terms of uh, if, the, if, if, if the Germans don't want Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, we don't care. We already built it because they asked us to build it. We make money out of it. We're still making money out of uh, <coughs> selling them uh, gas. If they don't want it, we're going to sell to China. We're going to build the uh, power of Siberia too and sell all the natural gas that the Chinese want. So they don't care anymore. What is very, very much more complicated is nuclear power. So now we have, <coughs> sorry, a declaration signed by the five uh, nuclear powers at the UN Security Council saying that they won't uh, initiate a nuclear first strike. You cannot, you simply cannot trust what the Americans signed because everybody apart from the Atlanticist knows that the American system is non-agreement capable. It's absolutely untrustworthy. So the, it, it, it's absolutely worthless what they sign in this declaration. The Russians know it, the Chinese know it, but at least if anything happens, okay, before we all die, of course, they, they, they can go online for five seconds and show the piece of paper saying, look, the Americans sign here that they will never uh, initiate uh, a first strike, nuclear strike. So at, le at, at least they have it on paper, right? So uh, it, it, it's so mind boggling when, when you look at, at the bigger geopolitical picture that uh, uh, we, we literally go crazy every day trying to analyze uh, the different layers of stupidity at NATO, trying to analyze the different messages coming from different factions of the war party in Washington, trying to analyze how the Russians and the Chinese are trying to accommodate uh, dealing with all these absolutely rational actors. And now we have uh, the first big story of 2022, which is this um, color revolution, crypto at, uh, incipient at the moment, color revolution in Kazakhstan, of all places where nobody was expecting it. And uh, just before talking to you, I received a confirmation from two different Intel sources, something absolutely harrowing but something that we were at the same time expecting. It is a color revolution. And the objective is to do it right before the Russia uh, 
uh, US meeting in Geneva and to create a diversion in the East for Russia. So they won't be able to tackle the West as they will uh, Americans, NATO, European Union in the next conversations. It's a diversi uh, diversionist tactic using the same old color revolution playbook. Mm -hmm. Who could have thought that this would be happening right now as we speak? Yeah, it, it seems kind of like a, uh, a, you know, a diverse tactic that, that isn't- it is. Not going to deal with the, the precise thing that Russia has laid their hands down. I mean, um, I mean, just to give us an idea, like what kind of a, a maneuver are we talking about? Are we talking about like the kind of maneuver they manufactured in two thousand eight against uh, Georgia? You know, we're, uh, no, it's more, it's more complicated. It's yeah. uh, it's a it's a Maidan operation, but slightly more discreet and not so obvious. Because after all, they are using uh, legitimate grievances, which in this case is a hike in the price of liquefied gas in Kazakhstan. Why? Because they uh, basically could not uh, stop. Uh, they, could, they couldn't give uh, fuel subsidies anymore because uh, it all uh, became a free market operation. You know, it, it's once again, it's, it's just, uh, what's going on it's a side effect of neoliberalism. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's a composite of, of neoliberalism. Okay, the market is going to rule on uh, liquefied gas prices. So the producers, they discovered that they were selling their uh, liquefied gas for uh, less than what it, it, it cost them to produce it. So they, they needed a price hike. So when that happened, Virtually the whole population in Kazakhstan, everybody in Kazakhstan has a car, an SUV, truck, or everybody, literally everybody. This hit them right in their pocket. So there were legitimate grievances from the start. And obviously, this is perfect when you, when you have a color revolution scenario. You pick on it, uh, then you have your cells and your agents already infiltrated to insufflate uh, basically uh, protests and riots. Uh, what happened in Almaty? in the past 48 hours are in fact riots. It's not only protests, you know, they set fire to the mayor's office among other, among other things. This is a riot. Can you imagine this happening in the US or in the European capital? So, uh, so now we have now the playbook of, a, of a, 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 an embryonic color revolution in progress. And obviously the Russian intelligence is looking at all that and said, oh, Gosh, it's and it's right uh, once again right in one of our borders, instead of western borders, eastern borders. So they're going to have to deal with it very carefully without interference, of course. Uh, the signs are that they are okay. Let's have our Kazakh friends deal with it. Only if they ask us, ask us for an intervention, we will help. But not as an intervention. But they can. Uh, with intel, of course, and it's not, we're not talking in terms of military help, but uh, uh, it's, it's an incredibly fast evolving situation, totally unexpected for everybody. But uh, the, the key lesson for all of us is that the process of Eurasian integration is extremely fragile and it can be attacked by the usual suspects on all sides and on every front. One, one, one front now is this one, Kazakhstan. The major, major front remains Ukraine. Uh, the JCPOA discussions in Vienna, it's another front because it's more or less obvious that the US and the, and the Europeans, they don't want a full return to the full 
JCPOA signed in Vienna in 2015. They want Iranian concessions, let's put it this way. The Iranians already have their red, their red line. They said, either we go back to 2015, the original JCPOA, or that's it. We don't care. Okay, it's, it's the ball's in your court and it's you to decide. You want the return of the JCPOA. You want to trade with us. You, you, you want to do business with a huge uh, Iranian market. All right, it's a win-win for you and for us. You don't want it, no problem. We have the rest of Eurasia <laughs> to deal with. We have the Russians, we have the Chinese, etc. So uh, these irrational actors in the West, they will keep doing everything they can to derail the most important geopolitical, geoeconomic development of the 21st century, which is the multipolar world as it is being conceived and engineered across Eurasia. So that, that will be the big story of the rest of the century, in fact. Okay. Well, with that, Star, I think uh, you've been very generous with your time. I, I, I want to thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts Thank uh, you, our audience, and uh, thanks again. And uh, I guess I'll let get, let you get back to uh, writing on Kazakhstan. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys, but I'm going back to Kazakhstan hell <laughs> right now. <laughs> okay, thanks. So All right, much. thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. That was independent ge geopolitical analyst, writer, and journalist Pepe Escobar. He joined us from Paris. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Things are not looking hopeful to some observers after a week of talks apparently gridlocked in Geneva between U.S. and Russian counterparts over the fate of Ukraine. It appears that the unbreakable NATO force will run up against the unmovable Russian object, potentially with consequences for Ukraine, Europe, and the world. The Global Research News Hour reached out to a voice with some degree of experience in navigating the tightrope between the two countries. John Helmer is the longest continuously serving foreign correspondent in Moscow and directs his own independent bureau there. He has been a professor of political science, sociology, and journalism and has advised government heads in Greece, the United States, and Asia. I asked him for his appraisal of the situation. There is a significant factional difference on the U.S. side, which isn't public in the American media, and there's absolute uh, solidity and unification on the Russian side as to how to approach the mounting threats of uh, warfare on multiple fronts, uh, east, west, south, and north of Russia from the US and its allies. So um, I take a slightly different view from the alt media pundits who see no prospect of uh, a negotiated de-escalation on the Ukraine front. And I'll come to that in a minute. But the big picture is that the Biden administration, and in particular, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and his uh, undersecretary, number three, Victoria Newland, are dedicated um, Russia haters, and they are dedicated to uh, damaging, destroying, breaking up um, uh, the Russian Federation and uh, penetrating and be turning into an anti-Russian alliance all of the bordering countries 
around Russia, the countries that were part of the old Soviet Union. That faction isn't uh, the only faction in American decision-making. And so you have President Biden, you have William Burns of the CIA, and you have the Chief of the General Staff, uh, General Tilly, um, who have a different view about confronting Russia, and their view is more conservative. Their view is based on the unlikelihood that U.S. Uh, uh, military uh, adventures and confrontations um, are likely to end badly for the U.S. side or for its proxies, the Ukrainians and so on. So you have a completely undiscussed, unexposed um, factional problem for the, for the Biden administration to solve on the one hand. On the other hand, the Russian position has ceased to be vacillating, has ceased to be ambiguous for some time. The conviction now right across the government uh, uh, is that there is no uh, possibility of effective uh, negotiating with the United States and the NATO allies on the Ukraine front, um, uh, in Syria, in, in the old Soviet Union space, so Armenia, Kazakhstan, and elsewhere, and in the Baltic Sea and on the Black Sea, there's no possibility of um, uh, allowing the creep of NATO and its military forces, including nuclear weapons, uh, increasingly towards the Russian frontier and increasingly threatening uh, Russia's uh, military capabilities to survive a nuclear exchange. Okay, so there's, there used to be, led by oligarchs and a number of Russian officials, Anatoly Chubais is well known as a name, and uh, Alexei Kudrin, uh, another well-known name, have been uh, supportive of uh, accommodations with the United States and NATO. Accommodations would include cutting the military budget in Russia and uh, dismantling Russia's uh, security uh, system and its buildup. That faction has been defeated. That faction, call it the capitulationist faction, uh, has been defeated and um, uh, neutralized now. And it's essentially the result of years of US sanctions and pressures on all these fronts. So the US campaign since 2014, since the putsch in, in Kiev, to put pressure on and uh, damage and replace the regime in the Kremlin, particularly President Putin, that campaign has not only failed, it's backfired. It's destroyed, neutralized um, the US support that existed among a range of senior uh, Russian officials. And uh, naturally it's isolated such uh, opposition figures as Alexei Navalny. All of that has been damaged and uh, neutralized, as I've said, by the ongoing escalation of US uh, force uh, in, in, in the places I mentioned, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, Poland, Romania, uh, Germany, and so on. So uh, what you then have now, what we have now is a solid Russian front. We've had enough, enough of this now. And all of this was set out very clearly, repeatedly so, by President Putin in December, 
in a couple of speeches, the most important of which is to the officer corps in December, and then in the, in the implementation of two proposed Russian non-aggression pacts, one with the United States and one with NATO. And they were uh, published by the Russian Foreign Ministry on December the 17th. Now, those documents set out very clearly the terms uh, from, from which there'll be no going back on the Russian side. Those documents were then on the table very clearly uh, in Geneva when uh, Wendy Sherman, the uh, Deputy Secretary of State number two, uh, one under Blinken, one over Newland, um, led a combination of civilians and State Department uh, and, and military officers to Geneva on the US side. And Sergei Ryabkov, her counterpart on the Russian side, led a, a comparable delegation. And their negotiation or their talks lasted about eight hours. Um, then uh, Sherman gave a detailed press conference in which she was asked intelligent questions by some of the reporters and gave interesting answers. And then Sherman went on to have a meeting with NATO. And all of this is, is produces a blizzard of press and, and you have to sort through the blizzard like much like rag pickers uh, to find uh, what's going on. And what's going on is something we have to watch extremely carefully. But what's your take of, of Kazakhstan overall and, and the effect that's having on this larger uh, confrontation? Um, it's very, tunnel vision causes very serious misunderstandings. Uh, and um, let me try and explain what I understand and have written about and reported from my Kazakh sources as to what happened. In what's been happening in Kazakhstan has taken a long time um, and a long time coming. And if one followed Kazakhstan closely, one would have seen a number of things coming. First of all, um, the dominance, the corrupt dominance, the monopolization of natural resources and, and, and wealth in the country by the Nazarbayev clan, the clan associated with the family of um, the, the former president uh, Nazarbayev, uh, that has been coming a long time. Second, the uh, withdrawal of the defeat of the United States and its pulling out of its forces to the Taliban in Afghanistan um, released large numbers of potential um, terrorists, guerrillas and militants to move northward along with uh, drugs um, towards the um, Soviet Union and the former Soviet states of Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and so on. That became a significant short-term destabilizing force since August. And um, the combination of um, protests were brought to a head in Kazakhstan in December by the what seems to the West, to the outsiders, to be a sudden increase in, in, in fuel price and gas price and a lockout on the vaccination front of, of, of many people from food stores suddenly caused a massive uh, public protest. And, and my understanding was that is that in the first wave, these protests were spontaneous. They were natural, they were organic, they came from deeply felt resentments and destruction of, of uh, living standards caused by the Nazarbayev clan and its um, 
its governmental and, and, and uh, commercial uh, representatives in the country. That stage started uh, many parts of the country, uh, many parts of Kazakhstan, but very promptly, the first wave of protest was uh, amplified by armed, organized armed groups, paid organized armed groups, including outsiders, arms, and they committed most of the violence um, in the second wave, call it the second wave. In the second, the result of the second wave was an, a, an unusually prompt and effective response from the collective security organ treaty organization, the CSTO, the combination of China with the former Soviet states like Kazakhstan plus Russia, uh, Armenia and so on. And the CSTO, CSTO moved in uh, a very large, uh, largely Russian, but not entirely Russian force plus equipment, which neutralized very quickly um, the, uh, the gang violence, the organized uh, terrorism, and allowed the Kazakh security forces to uh, secure the, the um, governmental institutions and so on. The net result we can now see has been the defeat of what happened, mm. um, but it has not resulted in, in a significant change in the structure of the government. Yeah. President Takayev has, has remained, but the, he's preserved in the new government announcement this week. The defense minister, the foreign minister, and the inter, internal security, the interior ministry. Now, that means that those ministries stayed loyal through, through this week of trouble and fighting. Um, he has sent to prison the head of the Kazakh uh, KGB, the Kazakh uh, Internal Security Organization, the KNB, uh, Karim Masimov. And, um, but uh, Nazarbayev seems still to be in the country. It's not clear where other members of his family, his uh, two daughters and, and, and their hangers-on and retainers and, and other members of the clan have gone if they've left. And it remains to be seen whether there'll be a significant change in the ownership of the country's gas, oil, uh, uranium, mineral, metals, resources, and agriculture. That will depend a large, in large measure on how Russian capital and Chinese capital now in the form of credit and, uh, and other arrangements flow into Kazakhstan to see, to determine the future of the ownership of um, wealth in the country. But politically, you could say in the short term, anybody's attempt to create a, a color revolution in Kazakhstan has failed. I think it's going much too far to say it was plotted by the US or by the British or by the Turks uh, by, or by any other outside party to coincide with the Geneva negotiations. Yeah. That's, that's conspiracy talk. It doesn't have evidence for it. It's the association in time and sequence of events that were distantly related. Let's say distantly related in the following way. It is US policy. It is British policy. It is NATO policy to maximize the pressure on all Russia's borders and all China's borders. And Kazakhstan is a powerful, uh, wealthy country in the middle between China, India, and Russia, uh, and an obvious target 
uh, on account of the long-standing corrupt domination of the country by the Nazarbayev clan, it's an obvious target for troublemaking, for causing chaos, for minimizing or damaging uh, Russian and Chinese influence in the country. Okay. So uh, what happens um, is part of an overarching campaign to create trouble and chaos in every direction uh, from which Russia faces outwards. just joined us. We're listening to uh, Global Research News Hour. My guest is John Helmer, uh, foreign correspondent based in Moscow. And, and we're talking about the, uh, the, the, mat, the chess match, I guess, in between the Russian forces and uh, the US NATO forces. John, um, we're, we're looking, I think, at, at a really long-term war, it seems to me now. I mean, you, the US gave up Afghanistan, but really in order to free up resources for the war with Russia. I mean, the war started 30 years ago with the fall of the Soviet Union, and then they started moving eastward in spite of promises to Gorbachev about not NATO not moving one inch closer to the country. Okay, they went through Yugoslavia, and then they, you know, tended to kind of creep their way forward. And now they're, they're really at the, 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 on the border now. So th does that mean now with, with this final statement by Putin about the red line and so on, does that mean that his final act, that this final act is inevitable? Is that confrontation going to happen either militarily or, or through sanctions or something like that? I mean, talk, talk about that, that critical point that we've just reached. President Putin has been making the red line warning for quite a long time. And the red line warning and the crosshairs warning, both of them warnings that if you come closer and threaten our security, our ability to fight in our own defense. Those warnings have come from President Putin since 2014, and they've got steadily stronger, sharper, and simpler and clearer since 2016. So there's nothing new about the warnings. There's also, as you said, Michael, nothing new about the creeping uh, offensive on the part of NATO and the US in, in, on each of these principally Western and Southern and Northern fronts from the Baltic down to the Black Sea. There's nothing new except the slow creep of weapons, including nuclear uh, warheads, um, increases the pressure on Russia and increases the danger. So that nuclear warhead missiles are now within seven minutes uh, potentially uh, deployed in, in batteries, Aegis missile system batteries in Romania, on the Black Sea, in, in US vessels, and in Poland, and in the Baltic Sea. So you've got increasing level of threat. And um, the, as I said at the beginning, the reluctance of the Russian factions, the commercial factions, um, the governing factions, the military, uh, intelligence service and foreign ministry, the reluctance to say plainly enough's enough ended, has ended. So at that, at this point, we now have 
a situation in which all of the propaganda from the West predicts a Russian invasion of the Ukraine. This has been nonsense, nonsense from the beginning. What there was was an attempt of NATO to invade Eastern Ukraine. That was a time to coincide with and did in fact get planned to occur after the shooting down of MH17, the downing of the, air, the civilian aircraft, July 17, 2014. There was to have been a NATO invasion of East Europe, Eastern Ukraine, then not called an invasion because the regime in Kiev, Poroshenko's regime, would have asked for it. That didn't happen. What did happen was a steady um, confrontation that's caused terrible damage to the Donbass and has destroyed the Ukraine as an effective state. It's now run by a faction of people, principally from Galicia, the west of Ukraine, uh, related to all the Canadians um, that you know and love, like uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland. They're Galicians, okay? What has happened is that Russia's readiness to tolerate this level of violence has uh, ended and so we have not a readiness of Russia to invade Ukraine, but a readiness of, of Russia not to tolerate the other sides launching a, a, a major aggression in the Donbass. On the top of that, as I said, we've got a series of proposals in the form of two treaties for the other side, for the US and NATO to negotiate. Now, many people think nothing happened when Sherman met Ryabkov in Geneva. I think differently. I see what Sherman offered on the table privately and then in her press conference was a readiness to first of all recognize what Russia has called and what is referred to in the treaties as core security interests. Core security interests mean Russia's readiness to uh, respond to any threat to its own defense capability, nuclear and non-nuclear. Now, what that turns into on the Ukraine front, uh, in the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, and so on, are a series of proposals by the Russian side that can be verified and made certain. No nuclear weapons will be brought to Romania. No nuclear weapons will be deployed in the Aegis system on the Black Sea no nuclear weapons in Poland, in, in Germany, and so on. Uh, I could go, th then there are other terms related to military exercises by the NATO side on the Black Sea, Ukraine, and so on. And then there's the issue, another of the terms, no NATO membership of the Ukraine. Now, I'm not going to get into the amount of flexibility that would exist potentially on the Russian side if the US side and the NATO side show reciprocal flexibility. But what Sherman told, said, she told Ryabkov, was, we recognize your core security interest and we're prepared to negotiate reciprocal measures for public consumption to deal with the maniacs in the US Congress, to deal with Blinken and Newland, who are Russia haters, who want to destroy Russia, like Ms. Freeland, for example. Uh, who, who adopt the Galician attitude uh, that Russians are racially evil, a doctrine that came with the German army into the Ukraine uh, in 1941. These 
terms on the table are now to be negotiated. And I would not describe the talks on Monday as a failure no. because in negotiation will determine um, what terms are actually decided. And I won't get into the small print. You can read about it in one or two of the pieces I've just done. But let's suppose folks at home can, can watch the Black Sea. Watch the Black Sea and let's see if the US side shows reciprocity by reducing the number or delaying the number of Aegis-armed US uh, Navy warships that move north through um, uh, the Dardanelles, through uh, the Straits, the Bosphorus, into the Black Sea and, and uh, so-called exercise with their allies, uh, Romania and uh, Turkey and, uh, and Ukraine and so on. Will there be any uh, de-escalation by the US Navy and by the British Navy and by the NATO navies on the Black Sea? That's really easy to watch, really easy to measure. If there is a de-escalation on the US side there, you will see de-escalation on the Russian side. Mm -hmm. And you will see a similar process you can observe in the Baltic. In the Baltic, we've had attempts to stop by the, uh, by the Poles and the Danes and others, attempts to stop the laying of uh, Nord Stream 2, the, pipeline, the gas pipeline to Germany. That caused confrontation at sea, dangerous confrontation, not armed, but dangerous. And in that case, it was neutralized and defeated by the Russian side, just as the attempt by the British to run a, a destroyer uh, into territorial waters of Crimea was neutralized by the Russian Navy uh, a, a little later. So all of these stunts, I call them provocative stunts, uh, come bring us much closer to NATO and US warfare directly with Russia. Russia said enough, enough is enough. Ryabkov met with Sherman on Monday and they agreed to negotiate on terms. And Sherman was clear, it's not in the public, it's in the public record, but not in the propaganda media that you have to read, that she said, I understand where Mr. Ryabkov, we know each other very well. We've been negotiating for years on topics like Iran, North Korea, and elsewhere. I know that Russia has core security interests, as we do. Okay, no. Mr. Helmer, I, I want to ask at least one more question because we're running a little short on time now. But I, I remember you were part of the Carter administration uh, back in uh, 77, 78, 79. Um, you touched, like, you, you knew Zbigniew Brzezinski and, and you knew that like, he was as anti-Russian as anybody in the current uh, administration is today. But he was an architect of these sorts of grand strategies. So, I mean, looking at the way or the, the methods that they're trying to put in place, what do you think he would say about the present focus of Joe Biden? Uh, <laughs> it's a funny question um, for this reason. Uh, Brzezinski uh, speciali specialized in Russia hating. There's no doubt about that. And he specialized in domineering um, uh, President Carter's mind in those days and, and making sure that nobody else, Cyrus Vance, the Secretary of State and others, could uh, 
persuade Carter of uh, the the problems, the adventurism, the the dangers to American interests, mind you, of Brzezinski's plans. Brzezinski was essentially an architect of Russian hating, Russia hating race war, um, carried out by proxy forces starting in Afghanistan. That's what he did. Um, and all of that's come to ruin for the ruin of Afghanistan, Iran, and other countries much, much later. And, and Brzezinski's buried and dead. But the doctrine of Russia hating has continued in US policymaking. Uh, what Brzezinski might say now is, uh, I don't see significant difference in what Blinken and Newland, Secretary of State and uh, Under Secretary of State say and do. It's, uh, it can be labeled neocon uh, ideology, it can be labeled many things, but it is not now, and I have to say, I hopefully not now supported by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States government, by the Pentagon, and even by President Biden. So, uh, but on the other hand, the public um, terms of debate have shifted towards Russia hating far more than those terms of debate existed when President Carter was in power between 77 and 81. From then on, from the disappearance of Carter, you've had a collection of Russia haters in the Reagan administration, a bit of a relaxation during the Clinton administration when uh, less than military means were used to break up Russia. You had the Yeltsin administration for 10 years. And now that you have a Russia that's somewhat stronger than it was during the, um, significantly stronger than it was during the Yeltsin administration, you have a return of this, as you correctly said, Michael, uh, Russia hating Brzezinski talk. But talk is worthless these days. What, what counts is action on the ground. And I've tried to suggest how you could watch the ground or the sea and see what the two big sides, the nuclear armed sides, the sides that could destroy the world, uh, if we're not more careful and more reciprocal, let's see what they're going to do. And in this process of watching what they're going to do on the ground, uh, reading the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, uh, the Financial Times, th this is a complete waste of time now. Um, what we see is, from a Canadian point of view, Freeland and the Prime Minister Trudeau echoing the most aggressive of uh, NATO lines, while not conceding that Russia has core security interests that will be negotiated or will, or will face a much worse situation that the allies would lose in, in the Ukraine. So we've got talk, not uh, instead of war. And if we hopefully will have less talk, more action on the ground to produce less war threat. Okay, John, I'm afraid I got to leave it there, but I thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. Uh, thanks, and, and hopefully we'll converse again in the near future. Thank you, Michael. I was joined by John Helmer. He's a, a foreign correspondent based in Moscow. His website is johnhelmer.net. 
You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.